0: Welcome to the latest episode of the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast. If you are a leader who is serious about building your leadership skills and transforming your organizational culture, you are in the right place. I'm Russell Stratton. And I'm Ken Cameron. And today we need to effing talk to Stephen Schrader one of
1: my oldest friends and I must say one of the best leaders I've ever worked for. I've worked with Steve uh, in a couple of different locations. We'll get into that over the course of the podcast and I've also become personal friends with him over the past uh, 20 or 25 years and I'm sure we'll be getting into that too if this podcast uh, goes the way that Steve usually takes conversations. Um, But I want to give you guys a little bit of a background. Steve Schrader has been the executive director of the Calgary International Film Festival since 2012 and he's worked professionally in the not-for-profits arts sector for over two decades, a lot over two decades, I may add. Um, From 1998 to 2010, Steve was the executive director of one of Canada's best-known performing arts companies, One Yellow Rabbit Performance Theater, right here in Calgary, lovingly known as OYR. While he was there, Steve oversaw a significant growth in the company's audience their revenues and their programming. I was there for most of that growth. Uh, That was a place where Steve and I both worked in a variety of capacities. I watched Steve rise up from being the um, receptionist slash marketing manager to being the guy that ran the whole place. And I was really thrilled to see Steve grow. And then I was even more thrilled when uh, in 2012, uh, Steve became the executive director of CIF, the Calgary International Film Festival. SIFF is one of Canada's largest film festivals. I believe it's the fourth largest in Canada. Correct me if I'm wrong, Steve. Um, but during his tenure, SIFF has more than doubled its attendance. It's gone from 19,000 audience members to 42,000. So isn't it like 2.5 times? So definitely much more than doubled its attendance. SIF um, has also secured its first presenting partner since 2009. And I worked with Steve as uh, the sponsorship manager for a very, very short period. And I know just how challenging that is to secure. So kudos on that, Stephen. And Steven's grown the overall revenues from less than a million dollars to 2.3 million over that time, and this is significant, CIF has become an Oscar qualifying festival for short films. And it's been named multiple times as one of the world's 50 film festivals worth the entry fee by Movie Maker Magazine. And on a personal level, in 2006, Steve was honored with the Rosa Award for Excellence in Arts Management. So, ladies and gentlemen, as you can tell from my effusive praise, it's my great pleasure to welcome to the podcast Stephen Schrader. Thanks for joining us, Steve.
2: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Ken and Russell.
1: It's a pleasure for us to have you here. We're going to turn the first question, um, I guess I'll kick off the first question, which is, uh, so Steve, tell our audience, why is the Calgary International Film Festival just so effing cool? (laughs)
2: <laughs> it is effing cool, uh, and I thought it was cool before I worked there, and I think it's even more cool now after 10 festivals at SIFF, Calgary International Film Festival, we'll call it SIFF, or some people call it KIF, uh, if you like, but, um, you know, here's what it is for me, I mean, and, and I don't want to make any assumptions about the demographic age of your, you know, your average listener here, but um, I'm pushing 50. Well, let's be honest, I am 50. Um, and so I remember, um, I've grown, you know, I've certainly spent a lot of my, most of my professional career in the age of the internet, but I also remember what movies were like before, uh, cable television, before, uh, you know, Netflix, well before Netflix. And do you remember for anyone who, you know, is of that vintage, do you remember what it was like going to the movies when, you know, Every It felt like every, when I was a kid, every film screening, you know, at the local Famous Players movie theater was full or, you know, really, really well attended. Everybody was excited to be seeing what was on screen and it, it felt like an event to be there and the excitement was palpable and people were talking to each other and... You know, it was a time when, of course, people weren't didn't have their heads buried in their phones all the time. So they were engaged with each other in a communal experience. And there's nothing like seeing a movie, after all, with 200 or 300 or 500 other people, uh, you know, crying with them, laughing with them, being thrilled with them. And that's what going to the movies was like when I was a kid. And that's what going to a film, a great film festival like SIF is now. You have an audience that is passionately engaged with what's on screen. You have, frankly, you know, when I go to the movies now that aren't part of a film festival, I'm, you know, there are people there and things, but it's rarely full. You know, let's be frank. Whereas at most film festivals, most of our screenings and, you know, at most great film festivals, you're going to have a, you know, a, a sizable committed audience, even for, what would otherwise be perhaps somewhat obscure films from a commercial standpoint so you've got uh a, you've got a, a critical mass of people who are there together sharing sharing an experience excitedly um and with all the emotional resonance of that you know com- but but compound that even further because in a film festival context like at siff you know in a in a typical year and and here I'll give the pre pandemic number number although it's frankly almost the same now during the pandemic, you know, you've got 200 some odd films in your festival and these are all, you know, you're showing 200 movies in a, in a, in a 10 or 11 day stretch. So you have this incredible variety as well. So you have, and you have, you have one audience, you know, you have several audiences letting out while several more screenings are starting. And you've got that, that coming and going that you, that you feel you've got that critical mass, not only in the theater, but in the lobby and outside and on the street. And that, excitement is like cap for, for film lovers, right? It's just such a draw. So that's that's one of the many reasons why it's so cool, I would say.
1: And, you know, one of the things that I found to be so interesting about Stiff is that it's just the right size. I remember mm. you telling me, I mean, in the intro, we talked about how it's the fourth largest festival in Canada, but I remember you telling me there's a big gap between the top two and the next two. And so it's just big enough to attract the, the some big name filmmakers, but it's small enough that you can actually meet them and you can actually get tickets to the to the films, which you can't do at something like the Toronto Film Festival or the Montreal Film Festival.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, and and by the way, this, you know, the, the, the ranking of size and, you know, which is the, you know, the difference between fifth biggest or sixth, that's a very hard thing to sort of uh, always be on top of because, of course, the the audience numbers and um, the other ways that we might gauge the size of film festival, those things are always Fluid. Those are always changing. One festival relative to another. So you know, we, you know, it's somewhere between the the fourth and the sixth largest in the in the country. The uh, SIF is, but but uh, but you know, I mean, that's it's it's hard it's hard to rank, but we're in that range. Um, but yeah, it, it is true. I mean, we at SIF, we we've talked a lot about how we, we the experience that we're trying to foster. Uh, for the audience is one where there aren't gatekeepers and velvet ropes and locked doors and bouncers, you know, any, any more than there need to be. Sometimes, of course you have to, you know, you have to, you have to, there are some limitations on, on just based on capacities and movie theater sizes, et cetera. But, but honestly um, we want our experience to be defined at SIF by how many, How many things you can get into, how many experiences you can have, rather than how many experiences and events and parties you're barred from. A lot of the, I mean, that that is one of the necessary evils that I suppose comes with being a TIFF, you know, a Toronto International Film Festival or a Tribeca or a Cannes. Is that, you know, they're of a certain size where, you know, most people aren't going to be able to have those exclusive experiences. Uh, Whereas at at CIF, we try to to make it as we we want everyone to feel invited as much as that's humanly possible.
1: It is. That's happened to me, too. There's one particular filmmaker who I've admired for years named Don McKellar. And I bumped into him at one film festival. I think it was prior to you taking the helm so I bumped into him on my own like just on the street or talk to him start talking to him after after a film that conversation was really engaging and we ended up walking to the operate party together then like two years later he returns to the festival I bump into him again he's like oh I remember you and then uh, it happened like at the third visit the fourth visit until ultimately I ended up meeting him at a, at a funeral of a mutual friend And he was uh and uh we, we ended up like uh kind of continuing to talk in the bar afterwards mm. and is so that we developed a, a, a kinship even outside of a fanship and that's the kind of thing you just can't imagine that happening at a con or a track or anything like
2: that. no exactly yeah and it's and it's part of the, that's part of the fun i mean that, that's another thing that you know not to go on about all the ways SIF is cool but let, let's just do it for indulge me for another minute i mean the, being able to meet and interact with the folks who make the movies um it's it's not an experience that we typically get to have when you're watching Netflix. And I love Netflix. I'm not bashing Amazon or or Netflix. I mean, I, I consume a lot of content online, but you could only imagine in your head what your conversations would be like with the people on screen or the people behind the camera or the people who wrote the script, right? Whereas when we bring those folks to Calgary for the festival, that's a that's a, that's not an unrealistic uh, expectation that you might that you might be able to ask them some question be ask them some, be able to ask them some questions or maybe even interact with them in a longer form context like you did with Don McKellar, Ken.
1: I, you know, I want to apologize to Russell. I monopolize the conversation because I'm
0: such a fanboy of the festival, and of Steve in particular, and I can see Russell pouting just to just in my left here. So, Russell, please, please, I know you're dying and chomping at the bit. Chomping, chomping at the bit. Uh, well, I, I could certainly um, resonate with, with me, Steve, when you were saying about that, you know, as, as a child, that enthusiasm for movies, and I remember that. You know, when a big movie came out, and if it was one of the blockbusters or something, the only way you could get to see it was by being at the movie theater. Um, now it seems to be we've got the umpteen different trailers that come out beforehand um every tom dick and abdul has written something in there about what they like and dislike about it and it seems to take a little bit of the mystique from it Um, so i'd be interested how do you manage to sort of balance getting that excitement about a new film um, but also with the current environment where everybody's likely to have access to all of the information beforehand how do, how do you get that to make the film six uh, other film festival a success well it's a blessing and a curse
2: this 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 information that people are able to access before before the festival blessing in the sense that um you know it's it's easier than ever for cinephiles those those people who truly are you know who do live breathe and eat film um to follow uh what's going on in the international festival circuit and to build anticipation for certain films that are coming it's, sometimes it does the marketing work for us i mean it th- this is a this is a regular experience i have where i i i walk into a screening at my own festival and it's a film where there's no real reason to think that it's going to be sold out. Um, and, you know, I had this experience just at, at, at last month's edition of the festival with a, a great film called Strawberry Mansion, where, um, you know, it's kind of a surreal, um, you know, un- I want to say underground, but but certainly, um, I don't want to use the word avant-garde either, because it's not exactly that, but, but certainly a film that's outside the mainstream, right, in terms of its sensibilities. And yet... Because it brought with it some buzz—hate uh, to use that word—but there you go. Um, from some of its, some you know, and it's a really new film. Obviously, like every film at the festival is, but yet it, yet enough was known about it, and and you could read enough about it online that the film found its audience, and it, it was a very full and enthusiastic audience indeed. So that's that's the good side of it, I suppose. The challenge is what you alluded to. Is that which is that it can feel like some of the mystique comes out of uh, comes out of it. I mean, so for example, our online world, when it comes to on-screen content, just like everything else, it's so saturated. I mean, content is ubiquitous now, and there are the internet has only expanded the range of offerings available. I mean, on any given day, without exaggeration, there are literally thousands of pieces of. Uh, film, you know, content, film, episodic, television... Uh, and other similar offerings that you could choose from, it's overwhelming for the public. It's overwhelming for the audience, and that's just compounded by the amount of other information about those films that you can that you can read, that you can access, that you can digest. I think it's a barrier for a lot of people who aren't died in the wool died in the wool cinephiles to engage meaningfully with 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 film. Now, it's like my the analogy I often use is if you if you're interested in, in getting into wine, say, you know, fine wine, you can walk into certain larger wine boutiques and be completely overwhelmed. How would you, sure, you know that that within a few feet of you, there are maybe a hundred bottles of wine that would knock your socks off, but how are you to know which ones those are? And you're not going to have the time, nobody, few people have the time to invest in, 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 in reading everything on the label and everything written about everything in there. You need a guide, you need a connoisseur, you need people who who can ask you meaningful questions about yourself, um, so that they can help and, and, and to the experience you want to have so that they can direct you to, to, to a few, uh, to narrow down your choices for you. Um, you know, and, and so that's, that's, that actually is where some of the relevance of a film festival comes from. Um, we're not, we, I think of us less as gatekeepers, um, and less as, um, you know, certainly we're not here to educate people. We're not here to take a top-down approach to what you should and shouldn't watch. But we are here to say, look, there's a lot of great film out there, a lot of great movies out there. And um, lucky for you, we have a professional team of paid programmers who are there to watch hundreds and hundreds of movies every year so that they can help guide you to an experience that's going to be wonderful and fun and meaningful for you as an audience member and help you discover
0: things that you probably wouldn't have otherwise seen say uh, it 's interesting you say it because uh, Ken's talked to me about the film festival before I have to admit it 's something i've not i 've not been to so what i 'd be but what i 'd be interested in is for the sort of layperson I look at it from a layperson's perspective okay so I'm not involved in the industry I've not been involved in film and um, and and theater apart from one brief uh, time as an extra in some uh, some show but uh, that we won't, we won't go into that but uh, um, so for somebody who's like interested in movies likes watching movies but maybe it's a little bit daunting to something like this film festival I, I don't know any of the artists that are producing here but um, I don't know what I should be going and watching. What would be the access point for somebody who's uh, a generally interested filmgoer in Calgary who'd like to dip their toe in the water with the um, International Film Festival? Where would you recommend they started?
2: Uh, well, the this is going to sound like a boring answer, but I mean, um, we work as hard as we can to make our website um, something that is um, e- an easy place to start. Um, there are many places you can start in general if you want to, if you want, and you don't need to be, it does, you know, I think the intimidation factor can be higher than is higher than the actual height of the barrier. If you know what I mean? Usually once people get just their toe in the water, they realize they're having a great time and it's actually a very approachable experience and it's not too hard to figure out what you like. Um, and also by the way, let me just put in a quick plug for taking a total wild stab in the dark. Many of us, myself included have had the experience given ourselves the experience where we say, you know what, I'm, I'm literally going to play spin the bottle here. I'm going to pick a movie almost out of a hat, you know, figuratively, if not literally, and get a ticket and go sit in the movie theater and watch it. And, you know, that can be one of the most meaningful, exciting, fun movie experiences that you have in your life. It's literally just picking something almost at random and going to see it. i've I've seen some of my favorite movies that way. Um, and a festival is a great a great place to do that because there are so many to choose from. but um but 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 more practically speaking, the festival's in september and and so we you know we we begin to populate our our website in August with the movies. We don't announce them all at once. And so, what I would encourage you to do, Russell, is you know, in, in in starting in maybe mid or late August, you just go to the website, and we we this may sound like a like a too obvious to point out, but it, it I have found it's really not an obvious thing from a web design perspective, which is, you know, you, you've got you're going to have 200 films, that's a long menu for most people to try to read. Um, So you just want to make it so that it's easy. There's one page. You don't have to click through to anything. um, And you you can just scan and read one sentence about each film. You know, you've got a photo from the film and you can see a sentence that hopefully captures, you know, captures the essence of the movie and, and grabs your imagination, your attention. Just being able to scan on that level, first of all, will help you decide you know, we'll help you, we'll help you narrow down to what you want to see. But we also just try to make it simple where there are some, there's some very easy search terms on the website. So for example, if you just say, you know what, I want to start with a comedy. Great. We can, you know, we can, we, you, you can enter that and it takes two thirds of the movies off the table. And now you only have to look at, you know, now you only have to look at, at, at 60 titles and then maybe, and it's like, you know what, also I can only go Tuesday or Wednesday next week. Okay. Well, that's going to take another bunch off. So before you really within a couple of clicks or a couple of just a couple of um, search terms in, in one window there, we, we can get your choice down to maybe just 12 films. Right. And then it's much easier to read. Then it's more just like a, more just like going to the diner and deciding what you want to have for breakfast. It's much
0: easier. Okay, you've laid the challenge down for me, Steve, and also hopefully for other listeners, um, that this is a much more accessible thing. And when Ken next tells me the uh, film festival is on, I won't look at the titles immediately daunted. I will go ahead, follow your advice, and re- you can remind me this this time next year, Ken, and I will to have gone to there, seen one of those movies, and I will contact you, Steve, and let you know uh, which one I went to see? Okay, that sounds good. Bit,
2: it's it's a it, okay. I'm going to hold you to that, Russell. And this is a no. It's great. Um, one, this is how we do it: one convert at a time. <laughs>
0: and now I'm worried I've been converted. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh,
1: let's back up a little bit in history, Steve. Um, I mentioned in the intro that you had you had started work at One Yellow Rabbit, which was a much smaller organization than the Calgary International Film Festival. Also worked in a different genre: theater organization versus film. Um, And so what was it like jumping from one company to the other?
2: Great question. Uh, Yeah, no, it's true. So I think I'm um, not to make it sound like I'm old, I guess I already gave my age. So the cat's out of the bag. But I think I've now been working in the uh, the arts sector, the arts and culture sector for 26 years. And as you pointed out, Ken, sort of the, the first half of that was in as a, a a theater producer working at mo- mostly at one theater company. Um, so producing both individual new works of, of theater that, that uh, original new works that toured uh, as well as a festival, the high performance rodeo, which was a festival of not only new theater, but new performance um, art. I don't want to say performance art. That's not the right way to put it, but, but performative works of art. And so in the live, the live performing arts right and then moving to the film festival for the second half of my career it was like once i being at the film festival it was looking was like looking at my previous um work as a as a live theater producer and a live theater festival producer um through a funhouse mirror because it was, was the same except totally different um the same in that look, putting on any type of festival or public arts and cultural offering, there are similar, there are similarities. I mean, a producer of one thing is very much like a producer of the other thing. Um, what's different is that in the performing arts, you're putting human beings on stage, whether they're musicians or actors or what, or, you know, anyone else comedians. Um, and in a movie festival, you know, a film festival. You're you're putting films on screen. Now you're probably thinking right now, well, that's that's great. That's Captain Obvious. You know, of course, that's the difference. But that difference means everything, because um, it changes the economics of what you're doing fundamentally. Um, It changes the global reach. So when I was at One Yellow Rabbit, you know, getting actual human beings from Calgary onto stages in Europe, um, you have to plan that you know, uh, a year and a half or more in advance. Um, If somebody gets sick, you have to recast them. Uh, It's also very worthwhile, but expensive to bring, you know, a dance troupe from Poland to Calgary or a troupe of experimental theater artists from Calgary to Edinburgh or what have you. So um, it's a longer timeline. You're dealing with much, you know, the economics of it are much, you know, you're much, much m- m- lower volume, I guess you could say, right? I mean, a big theater festival has maybe 12 pieces of theater in it. You know, a small film festival has maybe 150 films in it. So you, the volume is completely different. That makes, that makes the curation of the work totally different. Um, finding the right theater, um, you know, the, the right theater pieces to bring is like searching for a needle in a global haystack. Whereas when you're putting on a film festival the haystack, you know, a giant haystack falls on top of you and you're trying to dig your way out from under it. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure if that metaphor is making any sense. It's just a completely different experience. You're still dealing in hay, but but the hay is completely, you know, one is sifting, the other is uh, being buried and trying to unsift yourself. Um, Also, I mean, because, you know, a a film now, I mean, this is maybe a little different... 15 years ago when people were still literally sending giant film reels of actual film, you know, and and sending those from one city to another between film festivals. But now of course, films are, are, are primarily digital, which means they don't, they hardly weigh anything. (laughs) Um, I say hardly because sometimes you still have to get a physical drive sent to you with the film on it, but more and more it's, a you know, getting the movie from Europe to here or from Africa to here is, is a, is a download. And so, uh, but and then and then we receive it as a digital file, which means um, that the number of copies of that film, no matter how small and underground it is, that can be s- distributed out there to film festivals around the world is is unlimited, where almost unlimited. Whereas when you were dealing with actual reels of film, uh, you were you were uh, you know there might only be three or four making a making a reel of film is expensive. There might only be two or three reels of that film in circulation, which. Greatly limited the number of people who could see it, um but also the cost of getting it here is next to nothing now. Whereas it used to, you know, the cost of getting a back to the performing arts, you know, the cost of getting that that dance troupe from Poland here, it might be a small dance show, and you're lucky if it only costs twenty five thousand dollars to get them over here to perform for people for a couple of shows. Whereas it costs a couple of hundred dollars to to show the movie. So it means we it means it dramatically expands the range of countries that can be represented within the festival. It becomes, it's a truly global medium. Uh, it is, it's, it's that's why I don't like to make value judgments between, between the performing arts and and film festivals. But I think it's just an objective fact that um, for, in terms of a global window on the world, you know, it, almost in real time of what people are seeing, experiencing, the kind of stories they're telling, um, you know, film festivals are are a much wider window that way, just based on the economics of it. I'm sorry if that was a long answer, but we could talk about this a lot. It's very different from the theater festival world to, and the theater, live theater world to the world of a film festival in that regard.
1: And it's very different economically in another regard too. I, when I worked for you as the sponsorship manager, I just—I had also just come from the world of theater, where uh, even when I was running Canada's National Theater Festival, I couldn't get major sponsors to save my life because it was the festival was in Ottawa, it wasn't in one of the major centers. And then you know a year later, I'm working for you as a sponsorship manager at the Calgary National Film Festival. I pick up the phone one day and it's a Volvo calling me because yeah. they want to ask—they're begging—to sponsor the festival. Completely different economic situation, but it does lead to kind of my next question. And I want to challenge you. I want to ask you this challenging question, Steve. The film festival, when you took over almost a decade ago, was in a really tough spot, both financially, economically, uh, with its audience-wise, with its artists, and you had to turn it around from from collapse. Really, um, how, what was that like, and how did you do? How did you do?
2: uh well yeah it was in a tough spot um you know the festival had um and i want to first of all say that um it wasn't in a tough spot through any lack of audience um as a matter of fact the calgary international film calgary's got a great audience for festival almost from the first edition of the well pretty much not almost really from the first edition of the festival back in 2000 well before i was there it was clear that um, the founders of the festival had created something that, for which there was a significant appetite in the city and and a great demographic. And indeed, Calgary is a is a is a fantastic uh, film festival audience and film audience town. Um, but you know, putting on a putting on a big film festival, especially one that is growing that quickly, there was a lot of growth pressure on the festival in the early years. And you know, folks in business know um, that. Um, you know growth can rapid growth can be as difficult to manage as adversity you know as 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 downward pressure um because it's very easy to get out over your skis, as they say. Um, It's very easy, you know, because you actually have cash flow and you have, you know, you've got the wind in your sails and it's all coming in. Plus you have to expand your staff very quickly and you have, uh, uh, you know, you you have more and more um, business to business relationships. All There's more to manage um, when you're in a rapid growth phase. And I I, I really credit the founders of the Calgary International Festival for having the insight to to, to create this thing and be onto something. But um, and I think there were you know really clearly very visionary and bright people in charge of the festival, so I'm not faulting them. But it's easy. To, um, it's easy w- with all that, you know, that wind at your back to sort of get blown off course. <laughs> at the same time, and that's that's what happened at the festival. I, I can't take one hundred percent of the credit, of course, for for uh, for uh, for the turnaround, because in fact, a couple of years before I was hired, the board had, the board of the film festival, the board of directors had had clearly identified that there was just, you know, every year uh, you know, a deeper and deeper, uh, more and more and more red ink at the bottom of the financial statements. And to the point where it, you know, it could no longer be ignored. It was like, I think the festival's challenge really came from the fact that they were, the revenues were growing, but for every new dollar that they, that they earned, you know, they, they were managing to spend a buck 15 and that, you know, that's, that's only sustainable so long. Um and, and it's because their ambitions were were so good, and I and I don't fault them or so so high. I don't fault them for that. Um so but but unfortunately it, it did need a, a course correction. It reached a point where the festival was going to be insolvent pretty quickly if and there were a couple of bad breaks too, frankly, as as a as a call an old colleague of Ken's and mine used to say, Blake Brooker, he's you know has has said, you know, festivals inherently, whether you're talking about theater festivals or film festivals or dance festivals or comedy festivals, of festivals only ever Three bad breaks away from bankruptcy. and you know, siF did have two bad breaks. Uh, you know, a couple of a couple of um couple they got uh, stiffed in a couple of different places in some in some uh, by some by some partners and and unfortunately, and that 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 added to the hole. so um it it sort of triggered the need for a uh, a cor- a big course correction financially. So the board had identified the problem and had already sort of begun um I'd, I would say a a, a difficult course. Of when I say difficult, like a, um, a a course of austerity in the budget of the festival, and that's a diff. You know, props to them for for bringing that in. It made it much harder, I think, to run the festival uh, with a with a with a, the same kind of ambitions and audience size and audience pressure, but with but 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 with uh, cutting the expenditures of the festival back so much. And so when I came in, there was still most of that debt still had to be, uh, dug out of, but on top of that, because of the sort of the tough financial medicine that the board had brought in, um, there were, there was also, there were also not a lot of, you know, the budgets were very, very, very tight. So it was easy for the staff to get burned out very quickly, uh, because, you know, it was, uh, it was not, uh, um, you know, they were high. The bare minimum, bare minimum number of people working there in order to, in order to, to keep the lights on and and to keep the screens on the films on the screen. Um, so the process of turning that around was was very challenging. Um, what I the I think the insight that I had when I came in was that the festival was still was still looking had still been looking for that magic bullet that was going to get them out of trouble um and and it was usually something like look let's um let's get a big sponsor to come in here to underwrite the festival so that we'll then have more resources and then we can build the audience and with even further and that and that and that that increased audience will 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 help pay for things and and i i took the opposite approach i said look it's very tough right now to get traction with funders, sponsors, you know, other, other potential stakeholders like that, because we need to grow the audience further in order to demonstrate that, um, that, that this festival is going places. So my, where I, I think, refocused the attention of the company was on, let's, let's focus on audience growth. Let's not focus on sponsorship. We didn't ignore sponsorship, certainly. We worked very hard to keep the sponsors that, that were still there at the festival. The festival had been bleeding sponsors because people could see that it was in, in financial trouble. But so I said, even though we do need to grow the sponsorship revenues of the festival, what we actually need to do is focus on growing the audience of the festival. If we can, if we can grow the audience... Uh, sponsors and other types of funding follow the, they follow the, they follow the crowd. They follow the eyeballs. If they, if they can see that you are growing from 20,000 to 25,000 from 25,000 to 30,000 people, um, that makes the job of getting sponsors and other types of stakeholders much easier. So it was kind of a start with the audience, uh, framing the other thing, um, that, 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 uh, also had no magic bullet in it whatsoever, but was just the result of 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 uh, storytelling, I I don't by storytelling. I don't mean fibbing. I mean I mean authentic storytelling is. We just had to change the narrative around the festival because again, people knew the festival was getting was in financial trouble, and so it created a narrative of. uh, I would say fear around the festival because it was loved. It was very much Calgary wanted there to be, wanted this festival to exist. But the audience and and everybody else who believed in it was afraid they were going to lose it because you know this is a thing that happens. Festivals, film festivals, go out of business on a regular basis. So they thought that Calgary was going to be next. And so, um, the process of reassuring people, the process of we needed to create a new narrative of of success around the festival. So we. That Again, there's no magic bullet there. It's not like there's one thing we could do. We could say, aha, now we're a success. It was almost one audience member at a time. It was almost one stakeholder at a time. And it was about finding small wins. They were small wins at first. Later on, we were able to get some bigger wins. But it was about... building those into the story. When something positive would happen, focus on the positive, focus on, focus on creating the narrative. You know, humans are narrative creatures. Ultimately, I think it's easy to be blind to that because narrative and story is like the water to a fish. You know, it's easy to not realize how our entire way, our entire almost cognitive process is based around story. And so when story is negative, um, they tend to reinforce that that tends to reinforce further negative storytelling when story becomes positive and when you can start to tell an uplifting story a story of success that tends to reinforce more more telling of success there's a there's a there's a positive inertia there that builds so that was really the other thing we focused on boy that was a long answer um but i hope there was something meaningful in it <laughs>
0: Well, it was Stephen. It was really nice to see that sort of ability. Well, congratulations in being able to turn that around with you and your team from uh, from the negative to, to much more positive. Now, one of the things that I, I heard earlier on when Ken was doing your intro, um, and not all of our listeners may be as familiar with with film festivals, but they would be familiar with the Oscars, um, and that would mm-hmm. um, sort of spark their interest. So, how did the Calgary International Film Festival become an Oscar qualifying Festival. and what does that actually mean?
2: Okay. well, um let's see which of that which of those questions should let me let me start with the second half of the question first. Um, so Oscar qualifying for short film, what does that mean? So um nobody needs film festivals to be Oscar qualifiers for feature length film because um feature length film gets you know at least much of it, many many, many uh, feature length films. They get theatrical release all kinds of ways outside of the film festival circuit, right? I mean, yes, film festivals play feature length films too, but um, you don't need festivals to ha- to uh, in order for for, for feature length films to find their audience. We already have movie theater chains that play feature length films. Um, you know, the the Academy, the, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, you know, can simply say. And in fact, they do say, you know, in order to call for your feature length film to qualify for the Oscars, all you have to do is have a run. uh, And I forget the exact rules, but you need to basically have a run in L.A. County um, at a, you know, at a movie theater in L.A. County for a certain number of days within, you know, the year as defined by the Academy. You know, so long in other other words, so long as the movie's playing in Los Angeles uh, at some point during the year, it qualifies for uh, most of the different Oscar categories Um, for other types of movies that wouldn't necessarily get the chance to play a theatrical run in uh, in California um, or elsewhere in the states, for that matter, um, like say foreign films or like say um, short films, because very rarely do you go to a, you just go to a regular cineplex movie theater and, and see short films. Um, they need some other way of determining what the um, you know what the long list of, of, of potential nominees is going to be. And so for short film for, for, for foreign films, we turn to the, to, to each individual country and that country's um, that country's film board or that country's uh, film establishment. And, and for a foreign film, uh, countries around the world will nominate the film that they produced from their country that, 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 that they wish to be, to be in contention for an Oscar for short films. Um, the way you do it is you turn to film festivals. So if you're the Academy, you say, okay, we're going to select a limited number of film festivals around the world. And the short films that win, um, that win the awards at those film festivals are going to, by definition, then be considered as as contenders for an Oscar. So... um, so, uh, now how did this happen at Calgary? I wish I could say that we became an Oscar qualifying film festival because, you know, I, with my clout phoned up the Academy and said, we look at us, we deserve to be an Oscar qualifying film festival, but the opposite actually happened. The Academy reached out to us, um, And they said, listen, you've come on our radar and um, you, you, you know, you seem to be doing good things there in Calgary. And in fact, we don't think we have enough Canadian film festivals that are uh, currently Oscar, have Oscar qualifying status. There were, I think, I can't remember how many there were at the time. It was very few anyway, just a couple, one or two, I think. And they said we want another festival in Calgary, in Canada, that uh, that is an Oscar qualifier, and we think that's you, Calgary. And we said fantastic. What do we need to do? And so we so we we, we jumped through their hoops, but but ultimately got got approved for that. Um, but but I wouldn't say that was again. I mean that came at a time when we had been successful there. Back to the previous question, you know, I think we had focused on audience growth enough and through focusing on audience growth we had we had won the respect of many of the filmmakers whose films had shown at our festival cuz they attended and had a good time and saw that we were growing and saw that we were a meaningful great festival and so the word gets around about that and and essentially um i think we entered the radar screen of the academy through through that growth that we were experiencing and that growth in positive reputation not just growth in numbers and so that's essentially, I think, how we got on their radar and, and w- why that conversation started. Um, Steve,
1: Steve, you yeah. you preface that by saying I wish I could say that I you know with my club called up the academy, but but my friend, what you've described is even better. The Oscars <laughs> called you. I, I mean, know. you know, how, how many of us would wish we could say that? Right? Hollywood yeah. just called me the other day, and they heard about me in Hollywood, and they. It, I mean, I think I think you've got a much better narrative there, Steve it was
2: it i'll give you that it, I, it, it was it was really gratifying i have to say and it was and it was you know when you when that kind of thing happens it, it is like a validation right it, it's one of the things that keeps you it's positive reinforcement keeps you going right it, it, it allows you to see that you're on the right track in some way shape or form and 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 frankly it's one of the things that that then we were able to we what we became Oscar qualifying and it becomes a virtuous circle right because then you can say to your audience and to your local film industry and to everyone really look now we're an Oscar qualifying festival people people respect that the Oscars even though you know we could have a whole conversation about the Oscars and and whether they're on an upward or a downward trajectory overall but people still know what the Oscars are and they still respect anyone who's recognized by the academy in that way so that was that was really exciting um, I feel like there was something in your question that maybe I haven't addressed, but but uh, no, maybe I've I'll stop there. It. We're,
1: we're gonna we're gonna take now our traditional intermission in the spirit of uh, theater and dance and and you know in the, in the old days, films used to have intermissions when they would change. The Absolutely. Rules. So we're gonna take an intermission, and we're gonna ask you. This is what we call the quick fire round of questions, which are never quick. And um, so, so we're gonna ask you a couple of we're gonna ask you a couple of questions about your your favorite movie, book, and uh, other other topics. So your favorite movie that teaches you a life
2: lesson? Oh boy, I, I have so much trouble with favorite movie questions and favorite book questions because I immediately, just an overwhelming number of movies and books suggest themselves to me.
1: So, um, you know, our previous, uh, uh, one of our previous guests said, reframed uh, it in a great way. You know, it was a favorite movie that teaches a life lesson that I read recently. Or that I read this year. So, in your case, favorite favorite movie that you've seen uh, recently that I thought you would like that you, has a life lesson you want to share, either for work or business.
2: Okay. Well, uh, even still, that's so hard to narrow it down. No, but um, listen, um, we had a film at uh, CIF this year, um, going more on the recent. It's, it's called The Rescue. It's a, it's a story of a story that we think we maybe all know. Do you remember a few years ago? Um, uh, 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 a, 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 tea, a soccer team uh, from Thailand, a bunch of young boys and their and their coach were trapped in the caves, in, in a, some caves in Thailand when the when the spring or when the uh, the rainy season came early and flooded the caves and trapped them inside. The rescue is the documentary is a documentary about what it took to get those kids out of the cave. And uh, it was it's a harrowing tale. We all think we know the story, and certainly we know the end of the story in that it was a um Uh, You know, they all get out. Spoiler alert. They all get out. But you know that that doesn't make the movie any less harrowing. I could barely watch it. I was so scared from what was going on. We had you, you had people swimming literally kilometers and kilometers in the dark you know uh, doing something that even the world's most advanced scuba divers you know uh were 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 wary to do to 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 swim into where these kids were and then how to get them out was even was even the bigger problem i won't i won't give anything away because you may not know how they did it and you should see the documentary it may and speaking of the oscars it i would expect it to be one of the films this year that makes the document best documentary uh shortlist but um that film has a very powerful life lesson. Um, and it sounds trite to say it, but, but when you see the film, you'll understand the power of this is that, um, you know, you, there is always a way, but, um, there is always a way to do something. Sometimes the only way seems like an impossibility yet. The question always has to be, how do you make the, you can ask yourself the question, okay, it's impossible. What would it look like to make the impossible possible? What would we have to do? What would it look like in our imaginations to make the impossible become possible? And I think when we ask that question, we ask a very powerful question. So that's my answer.
1: That's fantastic. So um, favorite book that you have come across recently that teaches a life lesson that you'd like to share with our listeners?
2: Uh, well, I've read a couple of great books recently. I have a lot less time to read; it feels like <laughs> these days. But um, I, I the, the last two books I read, I think they both have very powerful life lessons. I uh, just read, um, I just read "How to Change Your Mind" by Michael Pollan, uh, which is uh, a fantastic. Uh, book about um, the rediscovery of psychedelic research um, and what it what's what uh, psychoactive compounds have to teach us about how our own minds work and whether you believe that this is a something that is uh, worthwhile for humans to to experiment with or not. um, It's a it's a very personal book about I think it's actually ultimately a book about about open mindedness and bravery. Um, I think it's so uh, and we could all use more open mindedness and we could all use more bravery. Um, so uh, I'll stick with that one, actually, as as the most that's, in fact, the most recent book I read. But I've but I've taken a lot of powerful lessons from it.
1: Oh, lovely. And then our third quick fire question is um, a life lesson from a sport or hobby that you're interested in. <laughs>
2: I have a great sport life lesson story, um, and I'll try to tell it briefly. Actually, it's also a set in Thailand, although it bears no resemblance to uh, to the rescue. Um, when I Before I went to work at SIF, in fact, back when I was still at One Yellow Rabbit Performance Theater, I took a vacation uh, and we went to uh, Thailand and uh, we found ourselves at Rayleigh Beach. Maybe some of your listeners have been there before. Beautiful beach uh, in southern Thailand on the uh, Andaman coast. And, um, uh, right outside of our cabana, uh, the, at this little, little village we were staying at, there was a beach volleyball net and every day, all day, um, people be playing beach volleyball. And, but the way that beach volleyball was played on this beach is that there were a group of, there was the local Thai residents uh, would come and play every day. And then the, you know, tourist backpackers would be playing with them. And it would always be a team of the local Thais versus the backpacking tourists. And I'd sit there and drink beer. I'm not a great volleyball player. I'm not super tall. Uh, Not that you have to be tall to be a great volleyball player, but I'm neither tall nor a great volleyball player. I'm passable at, at volleyball. Um, but, um, but not you, I wouldn't stand out on a team or anything. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to bring the winning, winning ingredient, uh, myself, but, uh, anyways, but I would sit there, try to work up the courage to, to go and, and sign, you know, go and throw my hat in the ring to play out, play on um, play volleyball. And I'd sit there and drink beer and watch the, watch these games. And essentially the, the tie team, always won they weren't particularly tall either but they played some of those people played volleyball for hours every day for presumably years and years um they were ferociously good and um you know you'd see these 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 backpackers go to play them and sometimes it was clear that you know Maybe one or two or three of the people on the uh, amongst the backpacker team were actually decent volleyball players you know they might be tall they might be they might but not only tall they might they might have be experienced at volleyball they might be good volleyball players they might be good at sports um but nonetheless they'd get killed and the reason was well i will get to the reason in a second so i i put so I throw my you know i go and i i i do whatever I had to do to sort of weasel your way into the game and i and I found myself as one of six playing and um and the first game, we indeed got killed, like you know, twenty-one to two or something. And um, then this new player joined us, and she said, "Hey, everybody, come over here." And she huddled us all together, and she said, "Look, he, here's what we're gonna do. Okay, it's very simple. We're going to work as a team, and the most important thing you can do: call the shot. So if if the, you think the ball's coming towards you and you want to play it, say mine. And 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 then." Um, we'll get it. We'll build a rhythm going up that way. But the most important thing is that we know as a team who's playing the ball, we'll take it from there. Okay. That was not something that had existed. It it was basically a team of six individuals prior to that, but she, she got us calling the ball and then she got us, she got she, she 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 got us doing some other very simple things um, that w- where we were communi- she got us communicating with each other and coordinating with each other nothing fancy no complicated plays just good old fashioned solid com- real time communication in the game and. It was a hard fought game, but we, but the next game we, we won. (laughs) And it was very surprising for both the ties and us, but we pulled it off and then it was time for us to rotate off and another group of players to come in. And I called to her and I said, I said, I said, I said, said, you, 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 you've done this before. You know, are you a volleyball coach? And she said, well, I, I play on the UCLA women's volleyball team and I never forgot that lesson. I said, she said it's really simple you know yes of course there are good there are experienced volleyball players and you know less experienced volleyball players not everybody has the same talent or aptitude but the the biggest ingredient in a team's winningness or not is their ability to communicate in real time with each other um especially under pressure and, and 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 to do so in
0: using very simple cues and very simple language i never forgot that lesson well, that's great. I, I like that one particularly, Steve, because it brings this idea of team, which is you alluded to earlier on when you were um, saying, you know, the, the turnaround for the film festival wasn't just about you. There were other people involved, and I think that idea of you know bringing people together, making sure everybody knows what their role is, that they're working collectively, as against being a, a group of talented individuals. Um, can often be outworked, whether it's in sports or, or in the business world, by a group of people who are committed and work to work together um, for that for an overall aim. So I, I'm pleased to uh, to see that example because it's one of the things I know that Ken and I will talk about in our workshops with our corporate work. So, well, I'd like to,
2: if, if you don't mind, Russell, I know you sure. want to get to another question, but I want to underscore that point a little bit. I mean, because we talked about some of the things we did, resetting the narrative and, and other things. Um, focusing on the audience in the, in the film festival's turnaround, I I, I want to say the third ingredient absolutely has been team all the way. Um, and now 10 years in, and I and we I've had the enormous privilege to work with some incredible teams at both at One Yellow Rabbit and at and at SIFF and in and in other contexts. Um, you know, the team we have now uh at 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 the film festival is literally down to a down to a person um the best most solid most communicative um team i've ever worked with sorry ken ken was great to work with ken and i worked with a number of times um and uh and he's always on my uh, mvp
0: list Well, that issue quickly added that steve because i thought it was a matter of once we got rid of ken actually everything started to come right. once we yeah. got rid of yeah <laughs> That's not, yeah, no. No, I, I, I think Russell's
1: nailed it. I think I think Russell's really hit it on the head because I was there during yeah. the turnaround here. I was there in, as sponsorship manager when people were like dropping like flies. So I, no. I think once you got rid of me, then you got your corporate sponsors, then you got everybody on track. I think I think it was I actually liked it.
2: Listen, Ken jumped into the trenches when, at a time when it was just—you know—that was that first year that I was in there too, and it was—I uh, asked Ken to join the team for a reason, um, so uh, not not to veer into mutual ad- admiration, but but I would just say that Ken Ken was there at a time when the bullets were flying, and you know the there was incoming, and uh, we just had to get it done, and, and it was everybody, you know, just leapt to action and, and, uh, many, many of whom, most of whom, in fact, were working for the film festival for the first time that year, I remember. And, 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 and that team also lives in my, in my mind and my heart as, um, as one of the best, I, I think though, a great team is one that you hone over time. Um, and so, you know, we've gotten to a place now, um, and many wonderful people have come and gone. We're at a place now where the team is so, uh, reinforcing of each other right not only the great communication that we talked about but also um championing each other lifting each other up encouraging each other that's and that's what happened on that volley on that sandy volleyball uh pitch as well not a volleyball pitch what do you call it volleyball court anyway um so these ingredients are incredibly important and and so team is uh I'm, i'm i'm honored by the team that i get to lead
1: yeah, but in the spirit of the mutual admiration that you were alluding to, Steve, you know, I, I got to experience your leadership skills while in those trenches. And you know, this, this communication that you described, this team that's gelling, I think it really does come down to the leadership that you provide. Yes, you've got the right people, but there's somebody who chooses the right people. Yes, they're communicating with one another and working uh, autonomously to create a great working culture, and there's somebody who creates that great working culture. And I watched you plant the seeds for that a decade ago when you were in that moment of crisis. And I think it, and it's really great to see that come to fruition. So the the, the reflection goes back to you, Steve.
0: One thing I'd just like to ask you about, Steve, when you talked about your team, is there something you're looking for for a team member? You're looking to select somebody for your team. There's certain characteristics you're looking for. Um, what's that sort of process like?
2: Great question. Um, and. I- I think the short answer is yes, I've, 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 I've thought a lot about, is there a way to codify this? Um, and, and I don't think there is a perfect way to, to codify it. I, I think, you know, um, as, as one of the professors at the Haskane school of business here in Calgary once said to me, you know, um, recruitment is not there. It, it can be assigned. It can have a scientific aspect to it, but it's a, it's an art as well as a science, which means, at a certain point, you're trusting your gut, uh, with who you hire. Um, and once in a while that your you you know, your gut doesn't go the right way, but, um, and sometimes you, you also choose to ignore your gut and sometimes that, that works out and doesn't, but generally speaking, I do believe that intuition, um, has to be part of hiring. Um, that said somebody, and I don't remember, I wish I could give credit to who said this because, uh, because I've, I've always reflected on it. Uh, which is, uh, and I think they called it the three H's maybe, maybe one of you remember, uh, who it was, who spoke about this, but they, they said that, um, the three H's, you know, the, look for, they, they made the case that going beyond knowledge or just raw skill, um, you know, I mean, obviously you need skill and knowledge in the people you hire, especially for certain positions, but they said beyond that, what you want are people who are, um, honest, humble and hungry. So they call that I, I believe the three H's. And that has always struck me as, and, and I've I've practiced that in many of most of my hires, and I've always found that almost unfailingly to be good advice. Honest. Um, well, listen, you can't have a great team without honesty. People need, and everybody thinks they're honest. But I mean honest like. Can you admit when you made a mistake, and can you admit that to your team members? Because admitting a mistake is the first uh, ingredient in fixing it um, and making things right. So, um, and you need to be honest with yourself, also, right? The many it, it, throughout our daily lives and in our business lives, we have to be honest with ourselves about about ourselves and about about, about our prospects and about what's really going on. So, honest, humble. Um, you know, uh, raging egomaniacs in my experience, rarely, um, make good teammates, no matter how skilled they are. Uh, they, they tend to have a corrosive in, um, impact on, on teams and then, um, hungry. Well, that one is, is maybe a little more self-explanatory, but, uh, people who really want the job, um, there are a lot of people who can do the job, but you need to make, and, and people of course, again, will all say they want the job, but some people want the job more than others. If you can get the trifecta of, of honest, humble and hungry in all of your hires you're going to almost for sure have a great team. Um I would I would add one other thing in there. A little when I'm really stuck uh, th- this is this is not sort of a criteria, but one the, one the thing I always coach my my managers when they're struggling with a hire, uh, because I I hire a lot of the people and I hire the senior people, but I don't hire everybody at SIF. Um, you know, while we have hiring managers who in turn hire their own seasonal staffs, etc. And sometimes they'll get they'll get it down to you know the, the problem you want to have. You have two or more outstanding candidates. Really hard to choose. You're going to be heartbroken because you know you have to say no to one of them, and you want to work with both of them. Um, and and I always say, listen, just perform this thought experiment. Put everything else out of your mind. Cast yourself forward in time to the first day, the day that this this new position is meant to start. Their first day at work. It's right before they've arrived. You're sitting there. You're about to show them their desk. You're you know you're getting their desk ready for them. And um, now it is. It's nine o'clock in the morning and the knock on the door comes and they walk in who imagine both of those candidates walking through the door and then listen to your gut who are you most relieved to see and people usually go oh okay and then you know uh and then then it clarifies it for them so um you know because often when we're making a choice between two difficult candidates um Usually there's one that on some level we, 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 we feel, we, we we do feel, um, more, we're going to feel in better hands with that person, but sometimes there's a, there's another extenuating circumstance that makes candidate B, um, eclipse them in some way maybe they've got maybe their last job was a really really fantastic job a huge feather in their cap and you know or maybe it's something else maybe it's something about something they've achieved in their career or, or something else about them and uh and, and or or you want to give because it's the person you want to give a break to more you know you want to maybe you, you sense that somebody's got you know the up-and-coming talent and you want to get you want to give them you know a great stepping stone in their career path but but ultimately i believe you should you should. You should, when all else fails and you have to make that difficult choice between two amazing candidates, go with the one who you are going to be most relieved to see show up that first morning. And that usually clarifies it for people.
1: And Steve, while you're uh, chatting, I did some little bit of research on the internet, and there's a lot of people who claim credit for the humble, honest, and hungry statement. It seems like every blogger in the space has claimed <laughs> it for their own, without giving credit to any kind of original speaker. The um, including the Jehovah's Witness discussion forum, which uh, uh-huh. uh, s- seem to claim it as as, as theirs as well. And they, in the ministry, they, they say they they teach these types of people. So there, so it seems like you can just say it's you, Steve. That, well, they're that, they're that a very works. successful
2: organization. I don't think we can we can dispute okay. that. No, dispute
0: <laughs> that. You mentioned earlier, and just in your last example there, Steve, about people sort of fast forwarding to think about um, who would you be most relieved to see walk through the door. So um, mm. we're going to go on a bit of a time travel ourselves with you, just as we sort of come to the close of our, our podcast. Um, if we fast forward another sort of t- 10, 15, 20 years into the future, and you're sitting there with your uh, glass of a uh, of, uh, uh, drink of choice and looking <laughs> back over your uh, career, what would be the one thing that you would like to be remembered for?
2: I thought you were going to ask me, what would that drink of choice be? <laughs> That's part B. Part B B of the answer. question. Oh, B. <laughs> the, the answer is it depends on what time of year and what mood I'm in. But that's not what you're asking me. Um, so, uh, sorry, I got so distracted with the beverage that uh, that I need you to help me one more time. Okay, so
0: uh, um, if we put the beverage to one one side for a moment, uh, you're yes. looking back over oh. your career. One thing that you'd like to be remembered for? Oh, what do I want to be
2: remembered for? Um, I. Um, I would like to be, in terms of my career. I think I would like to be remembered ultimately for um, the same thing. I'd like to be remembered for just as a human. And I'm working on this every day. I can't, I can't claim that I've uh, that I that I do this all the time. But I want to be remembered as um, someone who encouraged others. Um, and I mean, encouraged in the literal meaning of the word encourage, right? Like that gave others. That helped others, not gave others courage, because your courage is your own. Nobody gives it to you. Who helped others find their own courage? Um, and I think courage is just necessary on a daily basis, no matter what we do. You don't have to be a firefighter or, you know, a soldier um, or a frontline uh, you know, healthcare worker to, uh, be brave. We have to be brave in all of our interactions. Um, and, and, and if you think that you don't need to be brave, just wait five minutes and something will challenge the, the, the world, I don't mean to get mystical, but the world has a way of, of, of challenging you. If you think that you have, uh, you have, you have conquered the bravery game. It will just throw the next thing at you that, that takes you back to square one. You have to find your bravery all over again. So, um, I would like to do that. I would like to do that for my coworkers and my, my teammates. Um, I would like to do it for, I would like to do it both directly in terms of, you know, um, helping others, um, you know, find their bravery in, in work, but I would also like the, the, um, the the festivals and the events and the films that we present, I, I would like those to also be encouraging to people. You know, you see a movie like the one I talked about a minute ago, "The Rescue," and uh, although that's a harrowing film, it's ultimately an encouraging film because you see people solve an almost impossible, uh, seemingly impossible, intractable situation. And so, um, if, if if through the art that that uh, that producers like myself um, help. Uh, bring out there into the into the public consciousness, uh, and if through our daily work as well with with our colleagues and coworkers we can help people to feel encouraged, um, I think it's one of the best things we can do, uh, and and we need that in the world right now. There are far too many uh, people who are stoking division. I think we need. I think we need the opposite.
0: That's great. Thank you. And that would be a nice thing to uh, for a point for us to finish on our. Uh, podcast today Um, but just before we do um, I'm going to give you the the last sort of uh, say 30 seconds Steve is there something that you're working on at the moment that you would like our listeners to know about something that you'd like to say put in their diary um, give them a quick shout out now's your chance
2: well I mean of course I would like everyone who's hearing this if they haven't checked out the Calgary International Film Festival or if they're outside of our uh, geographic area to check out their own local film festival, whatever, whatever that may be. Um, I, I, hope they do that. Um, something I've been, I've been doing, uh, recently I, for the past, um, for most of the past year, 2021, I've been co-chair along with my wonderful colleague, uh, Janet Buititi. Um, we have been co-chairing an organization called Creative Calgary and Creative Calgary is a nonpartisan, uh, group of citizens, uh, individuals, um not only arts professionals but but citizens at large who believe that um, a prosperous and vital city uh requires as one of its core ingredients a vital um uh, a vibrant um arts community and arts scene um and that that arts and culture are not a nice to have but need to have in terms of driving uh, prosperity and um and livability and retention of young people and retention of talent and attraction of talent and 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 intellectual capital to a city so um that's creative calgary's mandate is 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 further that for Cal, you know, develop and foster that for Calgary through the arts and through advocating for the arts in public policy and at election time and when our government's budget and what what our government policies support and what they invest in, and 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 we believe that that investment in the arts is a uh, and we in fact we don't just believe it we know it from the stats that investment in uh, the arts and other types of uh, public policy that, that foster the arts and empower uh, film, the film and TV industry, as well as, as well as um you know, the performing arts industry and the festival scene and all, and all kinds of, all kinds of, of art, of artistic activity. We believe that, and we know that the stats tell us that that that's something that, that, that helps make cities great. It helps make cities known. It helps, it helps with a city's brand and its reputation, not only with its own citizens, but with, but, but out there uh, in the business and uh, public sphere um, well outside of of its city limits. So I've been co-chairing Creative Calgary. We just uh, went through a civic election here in Calgary, and um, something that we were really focused on was um, a Votes Pledge campaign to encourage Calgarians to uh, vote with the arts in mind, to research the, um, the arts policies, uh, the arts and cultural policies of the candidates running for city council and the mayor. And I'm happy to say that the new city council that came in, uh, is looking and certainly their our new mayor, um, are, 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 um, are clearly, and have un- the majority of the new city council have unequivocally said that they, that they support, um, and they, and they look to find ways to grow the arts and cultural sector in the city and to develop policies that support that. So that's been, that's been a little bit of, um, work I've been doing outside of outside SIF, of but still related to my industry, I guess you could
1: say. That's great that you can find all that free time in your, in your schedule, Steve, because I know how busy you are. And I really, on that note, really appreciate the time that you've made for us today to be here on this podcast. It's really been great having that That wraps up this episode. We hope that our listeners enjoyed it. Remember to subscribe via uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or your effing podcast provider of choice. Share the link with your friends and your effing colleagues. You can always reach out to us at that effing email address in the show notes. Goodbye for now, and we'll effing talk to you soon.